Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Global news story, provinces missed out on $14.5 billion in equalization payments due to rule changes. And uh, there's also the issue of how much additional debt this country can take on. And what would the budget officer advise the federal government as far as expanding programs like EI is concerned? And what happens if the prime minister moves toward a guaranteed income, whether they call it that or something else? Mrs. Giroux, thanks for coming back on the show. And would you start us off, please, by giving us the story behind the $14.5 billion in equalization payments missed by the provinces? Sure, it's a pleasure to be, pleasure to be on the show again. Uh, we released a report earlier this week that indicated that due to uh, a rule that was introduced to the equalization program in 2008-2009, which limits the growth of the overall pie, the amount of equalization amounts to be distributed to provinces, um, that is limited to nominal GDP growth. And due to that growth, uh, that is constrained, Provinces and territories have lost a combined $14.5 billion over a 10-year period. Um, that was 16, over $16 billion up to uh, two years ago. But in the last two years, uh, the equalization program and that rule uh, overcompensated territory, uh, provinces sorry, by a little bit over $2 billion. So net over a 10-year period. Uh, the growth rule in the equalization program reduced entitlements of provinces by $14 billion, $14.5 if I'm not mistaken. So did that money go into federal government general revenues? Exactly. It's money that the government, the federal government did not have to spend, so it was able to use it for other purposes. Uh, otherwise, it would have gone to provincial coffers, uh, to provinces that are uh, receiving equalization, and all provinces and territories, all provinces, sorry, are receiving equalization, except Alberta, Newfoundland, Saskatchewan, and BC. So all six other provinces are receiving equalization payments, and they would have had these additional amounts at their disposal. Okay. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Alberta's contributions to equalization when they're projecting a $24.2 billion deficit. Uh, Mr. Giroux, the Minister for Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion, Carla Qualtro, said this week the changes to the CERB program will cost, if I have this correctly, $8 billion to extend CERB for one month, and another $7 billion to modify EI, and add $22 billion for the CRB, the Canada Rev Recovery Benefit, which will pay $400 weekly to recipients and not begin to claw back any monies, until a recipient earns $38,000. Uh, what do these numbers and program modifications mean to you? Uh, and I say this uh, very respectfully, as the watchdog of parliamentary spending. Well, it suggests that these are very, um, very expensive changes to the current program of EI. Uh, the extension of CERB, which is to be a temporary measure, is not as expensive as the first few months of CERB because at that point, there were millions of Canadians who could not work due to everything being closed. So a one-month extension at $8 billion is much cheaper than the first month, April, for example. Uh, but the cost of changing EI is something 
that is slightly more expensive because it makes the program much more generous. The question that uh, many people have is whether this will come out of general government revenues or whether this will be recouped through higher EI premiums paid by employees and employers over the next couple of years because under legislation, the EI account has to be uh, self-sufficient uh, over a seven-year period. So the premiums have to equal the amounts paid under the program plus the admin costs. So enrichments such as the ones that have been announced by the government will probably have to be paid by all of us who are contributing to the EI pot, uh, including employers through higher premiums over the next several years. So that's the question that is still not perfectly clear in my mind. And if it is to be paid through higher EI premiums, such an enrichment, uh, for example, we're talking about over $20 billion just based on the amounts that were announced at the end of August, that would be equal to all the regular EI payments that are made in a normal year. So that is a substantial increase, which would suggest that EI premiums would have to go up significantly over the next several years. Uh, that being said, we haven't done in the office, we haven't done our own independent estimate of these, uh, the cost of these measures, not yet, but we're in the process of doing that. Yeah. And when we consider that, according to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, some 155,000 small businesses, maybe as many as 225,000, will close their doors for good, or may close their doors for good, that uh, extra contribution to EI will fall on a smaller pot of contributors and raise the the numbers even more dramatically for them, potentially. But let me ask you this. Do you have any idea where the projected deficit may be headed? And, and what is the figure right now? Well, the, the latest figure that we have is the one that was announced in the government snapshot early in July, and it stood at $343 billion dollars. Uh, since then, the government has announced a few program changes, most importantly, the changes that you have just mentioned to uh, an extension of serve and EI. What we don't know yet is whether the government had included these, uh, these amounts in its deficit forecast of $343 billion or whether this is in addition to, to the 343. Uh, so we will be releasing an update, our own update, um, at the end of September, uh, including the uh, extension of CERB, these uh, enrichments to EI, and in the other measures that the government has announced since its snapshot early in July. So we will have our own independent estimate of where the deficit will be, is likely to be, uh, at the end of this month. So it, on September 29th is the tentative date for the release of our own estimate. Okay, we'll look for that. Was the pandemic relief money properly spent, and, and where was it most needed? Now, small business owners are deeply concerned over delays. We also have significant numbers of young people uh, up to age 24 who are receiving $2,000 CERB payments while living with their parents and in homes where the total income was in six figures. There's also the issue of students again living with their parents in homes where the family income reached or topped $100,000. And they received a billion dollar plus through the Canada Emergency Student Benefit Program. Does that make sense? Is that prudent spending of money by the federal government? Um, 
I'll leave that judgment to to you and your auditors, because as an independent and nonpartisan agent of parliament, it's very tricky for me to make these kinds of judgments, because if I was to opine one way or the other, I would be immediately accused of being partisan and taking positions. So I'll let your uh, your auditors and people listening to us uh, make their own judgment on that. But I'll say this, StatScan released uh, data over the last couple of days indicating that the disposable income of Canadians, despite all the job losses, has increased. So that says a lot about the amount of income support measures by various levels of government, most notably the federal government, uh, in the months since the pandemic started. And the same thing happened in the U.S. So despite millions of people losing their jobs, the aggregate income of Canadians has increased despite the millions of job losses. And that's not through magic, but that's most importantly, it's through government transfers. So governments have more than compensated the income loss of people, again, on average, because somebody who was uh, on a job making fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 a month, um, ending up collecting CERB is worse off. But as you mentioned, somebody who was uh, who is living with his or her parents, a student, and collecting CERB at $2,000 per month is probably better off. So yeah. whether it was money well spent or not, um, various people will have different interpretations, and I cannot get into that debate to maintain my nonpartisan hat. Understood. But if, but if we went for a beer, I'm sure I'd have an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I know why I like you. <laughs> Let's go for that beer. Uh, one more question. <laughs> one more question, Mr. Giroux. You told us, and we have about 30 seconds. You, uh, I asked you last uh, conversation about a guaranteed income program and the cost to Canadians. You've done some costing on that. Yes. Uh, a, a senator, Senator Wu from British Columbia, asked me to cost uh, um, a guaranteed basic income if it was to be introduced in in, in this period, like about uh, around the time we were talking, uh, for a six-month period. And depending on whether the clawback rate is high or low, it would cost between 45 and $90 billion for a six-month period. Mind you, it's a, a period where the economic circumstances are not very good, so that's one reason why it would be very expensive, right. but it's also related to the fact that it would apply to virtually everybody, and it would also uh, have clawbacks of various rates. So uh, okay. $45 billion is a clawback rate, very high, $0.50. Cents, uh, every dollar you make, you lose $0.50 cents of your um, basic income, uh, and $0.50 cents, um, clawback rate is the $90 billion cost over a six-month period. So it's very expensive to be generous with everybody. Yeah, it sure sounds that way. So if we go for that beer, can we put it on your expense account? I don't have an expense account, so <laughs> sure, you can put it on mine. It's, all right, it's all right. zero. It's fairly easy. <laughs> the battle continues and heats up between the Ontario Teachers Federations, or Teachers Unions, and the Ford government over reopening schools. And Harvey Bischoff is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, Mr. Bischoff, thank you very much for coming on the program, and you're talking to a national audience here. When uh, when you heard the words, and it's not the first time you've heard it, but when you heard me play back the clip of what Doug Ford had to say, why don't they come to the table? What do you say? 
Um, you know, on March the 12th, the day that the, uh, the closure of schools in Ontario was announced, I sent a, a letter to the Minister of Education pledging our, our uh, complete cooperation in keeping schools safe and effective. By the end of March, we were pleading with the Ministry of Education to work with us. Um, at that time, we had no idea when reopening might occur, but we knew that, you know, it would happen at some point. It would be an enormously complicated project, um, and, and we needed to start planning they shut us out. Um, in June, when it was clear that they weren't going to consult with us whatsoever, we, wish, we issued our own uh, position paper on, on you know, what we thought would be some useful reopening measures. In the summer, I sent a letter to the Minister of Education asking him to meet with me. He didn't even respond. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, we met with the Minister of Labour, having been shut out by the Ministry of Education. He gave us a half hour of his time despite the fact that we're dealing with what I think is one of the most complex projects this government has un- had to undertake in its history, the reopening of schools in pandemic times. Um, and, you know, that's been the approach. So we've tried at every turn, and they've just shut us down. So you've heard me say, and I don't need a comment from you on this, but Premier Ford used to come on this program. He doesn't now for some reason I don't understand. But I will quote him from a news story saying, I just don't understand We've worked with every labor organization, every group in the entire country, and all different political stripes, and 99.9% of everyone is getting along except for this one group. It's the teachers' unions. Why? I'll work with you. Everything you've wanted, we've given you. We've put $1.6 billion into education, more than anyone, anywhere in the country, in any ministry. You wanted ventilation? We got ventilation. You wanted more money for teachers? We got more money for teachers. We went out and got the reserves. We have more cleaning. We've covered every single list. And I'm asking just once for your cooperation. We've done absolutely everything. The unions have wanted everything that the advice from the health table, from the Ministry of Health, everything from the Ministry of Education. We're sparing nothing. Every idea possible we're putting into the classrooms. We're doing everything we can. We're going to continue doing everything we can. I hear the word everything a lot in there. So you're telling me one thing. These words say from Premier Ford suggest you're the ones who are not cooperating. (laughs) Where do we go from here? Yeah, so with it, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to repeat my last answer, obviously, but I understand that the Premier would like to paint this as a battle between the unions and his government, because that's, you know, that's good ground for him, and it distracts from the inadequacy uh, of his, an opening, uh, his, his reopening plan. Uh, but let's be clear, if the education unions in Ontario um, were standing alone um, in their, their criticism of various aspects of this, of this plan, you know, he might have a point, but the fact is, there are parents groups. There's the Ontario Principals Council, not exactly wild-eyed radicals, those folks. Um, there are multiple epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists who have, have profound criticisms of this plan. So, I mean, he tries to isolate us in that, um, and, and it's, it's simply not accurate. There is, there is criticism coming from all corners that he is he's flatly ignoring. What do you want? Uh, well, what, what we would really like is them to adhere to um, a number of standards around several critical issues. So, you know, everywhere else in this province, two meters of physical distancing is required, but it's by some magical thinking, our classrooms um, don't have that same requirement. You can have kids within one meter or even closer. If you put 35 high school kids in a classroom, they won't even have one meter between them. 
There are industry-wide standards um, from from well-respected groups like the American Society for Heating, Refrigeration, Air Conditioning Engineers, ASHRAE. They've published standards for uh, air quality in the school and university reopening in a pandemic. The government refuses to implement not just those standards, but any standards. The Public Service Health and Safety Association, a body appointed by the Minister of Labour himself, has come out with transportation standards. They won't adhere to transportation standards. We have no objective measure to tell whether our schools are going to be operating at an appropriate level of risk. And so what we want are those standards to be put in place. Is the province of Ontario then, or the Ford government, lagging behind other Canadian provinces in making the school environment as safe as you would like to see it? Um, you know, in some areas, yes, in other areas, no, but, but frankly, I, I, I have to say that's not the measure that interests me. The, the measure that interests me is, are we going to be operating at an appropriate level of risk? Will we be following Ontario's own Occupational Health and Safety Act that says when the science is unsettled, you, you implement the precautionary principle that says you take every precaution reasonable under the circumstance to secure the health and safety of workers and therefore the students that they're working with the families that they're going home to, the communities that they're living in. That, that's what I want to see. And this game of comparing, you know, the, uh, the, the Ontario Minister of Education loves to talk about it being the best plan in the country. I'm not sure there's an objective measure for that. But frankly, who cares if it's not good enough? Well, it was a legitimate question I asked you. It didn't come from anybody else. It came from me. But no, no, parents... I, 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 absolutely, it was a legitimate question. I appreciate that. Yeah. Parents have options as far as whether or not they want to send their children back to school is concerned. Um, does that not answer or deal with a lot of your concerns? Well, some parents have options, and I think it's really important to bear that in mind. Um, so some, uh, it's somewhere between, I think, 25 and 30% of parents who said they're not returning their, their uh, children to school face-to-face at this time. Um, there's a, out of the remaining group, what percentage of those parents simply aren't in a position to continue to keep their kids at home while they need to go to work in order to make ends meet or they you know and they they simply don't have the the capacity to deal with um potentially you know multiple children at home uh, insufficient access to hardware to to uh, uh wi-fi all of those things so i think for a lot of parents and frequently it's the parents in the hardest hit neighborhood when it comes to covid um, that are the ones whose choices are, are truly constricted by um, the, the, the conditions that they're living in. One more question, Mr. Bischoff. How do you answer to the charge? And I've heard it quite a bit. Um, and uh, I know the teachers unions in this province, in the province of Ontario, that's where I'm located, have uh, traditionally been at loggerheads with conservative governments. But I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case now, that there's a fundamental philosophical difference that's driving this. But there are people charging the teachers' unions in Ontario are so committedly opposed to Premier Ford and his government that no matter what the Ontario government did, teachers' unions would oppose it. What do you say? Well, I, I, you know, my very first answer, I cited at least a half a dozen different legitimate, sincere efforts we made to work with this government because, frankly, in the time of pandemic, people's life, uh, lives and health are at risk. I'm not interested in that kind of partisan squabble. It was time to step up. We made every effort to do so. And, and they rejected our efforts. And at that point, um, you know, we were, we're taking our other um, legal avenues to try to address this in the best interests of, we think, everybody in the school system and in the community. Um, and the government is trying to reject that on narrow technical grounds, which is 
really unfortunate. So I do have one more question. Uh, you say you're taking every legal ground, every legal option that you can. What are the next steps that you and the other teachers' federations will be engaging in? Yeah, so we have a hearing coming up next week, uh, first day of hearing at the Ontario Labor Relations Board, where we will be appealing the government's refusal to issue orders to follow any level of standards for the, for a safe reopening. Uh, and that's exactly where I've seen the government's response to our appeal, and their response isn't to, to uh, address any of the substantive health and safety issues. Uh, they're trying to get it kicked out on technical issues, um, narrow issues of uh, jurisdiction and so forth, and you know, that makes me question whether they have any faith in their own um, in their own plans around reopening. We've been told by vaccine medical experts that it's routine for vaccine development and distribution to the public to take years, sometimes many years. With the COVID-19 vaccine time being of essence, uh, let me ask you this. What's the normal process once a vaccine is developed to move it from Health Canada approval to a person visiting his or her doctor or pharmacy and actually receiving the vaccine? Good question. So, you know, once we've got, you know, a nice large trial that gives Health Canada confidence that the drug, the vaccine is effective, uh, so they'll issue a license. And, and at that point, in principle, uh, it can be provided to patients. But there's a few steps that we need to get through uh, before the actual patients will access it. First of all, there's an organization called the Patented Medicines Price Review Board, which will uh, agree the maximum price that can be uh, charged for, for, for any drug in, in, that's on patent in Canada. Um, you know, that will go very quickly, I'm sure. Uh, you know, we're already seeing information on the prices down in the States that are in the sort of between 20 and $40 mark. So, we're not expecting price in the pandemic period for to be to be an issue. Then uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada has a, a national advisory committee on immunisation, and they uh, will look again at the evidence that the the drug the vaccine is safe and effective, and and they'll make a recommendation uh, about it being made available to all Canadians. And again. You know, we can't see a world in which they're going to take any great length of time on that. They may make some comments on uh, how it, the how the allocation should be prioritised. But again, I don't think we're going to see any great delay there. Then, then the final stage is, is where the uh, where the provinces uh, will negotiate with the manufacturers the price that they will actually pay and how many doses they will buy. Uh, and uh, you know that's uh, usually done. One province at a time, each province is responsible for healthcare, as you know, and, and they will have their own negotiations. But there, there has been uh, examples before where provinces have, have worked together in a group uh, to negotiate uh, for a vaccine, the price for a vaccine and the amount they're ordering. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if we saw that happen again, uh, because it's so important that we get the uh, COVID vaccine uh, rolled out nationally uh, as quickly as possible once it's proven to be effective and, and licensed for that purpose. And, and I imagine conversations along uh, the lines of how to do this effectively and, and, and responsibly are already underway. Absolutely. The, uh, you know, all of the promises will be, be looking already with you know, the public health, uh, chief medical officers of health departments will be looking at how to, uh, to roll it out and, and, and who to, uh, administer the vaccine for two first. You okay. know, we, we, that's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's quite challenging. 
Are, are governments internationally moving quickly, and is red tape being cut again internationally to push vaccine distribution to the public much more quickly worldwide? I I, I don't know that I, I, I could comment that red tape is being uh, cut. I'd say that they're, they're preparing early. They're trying to get everything, all the ducks in a row uh, so that when a, uh, a, a vaccine does come to Health Canada and their equivalents across the world, that they're ready to move as quickly as possible. But it's really important that they don't cut standards because the worst thing we could have is uh, a vaccine that doesn't work very well. If we spend yeah. the money administering one that doesn't work well, we'd all lose faith in, vac- in, the, in the subsequent vaccine. So I think they're, they're getting everything lined up to move as quickly as they can uh, throughout the process. But the standards, uh, I'm pretty confident they will stick to the standards that they have. Yeah, I shouldn't have used the term uh, cutting red tape. Um, what happens in the case of multiple vaccines from different drug manufacturers? So they will all be, uh, you know, licensed independently uh, and uh, reviewed for their maximum price independently. But when it comes to the, uh, and they'll also get the public health agency will view, review them independently. So the evidence is looked at a number of times uh, for each individual one. Uh, and then it comes to negotiation, uh, where obviously for the, the provinces, uh, if there's multiple providers, then you can get some competition and hopefully you can uh, push down on the price and, and, and get lower prices to, to get the coverage you need than if there was just a, a single vaccine and a single provider. I don't think most of us had any concept of, or I certainly can speak for myself, didn't really have any concept of everything that's involved and engaged in getting, a, in this case, a vaccine to, to the public, everything that has to be taken care of. Not only the testing, I get that part, but also the economics part of it is a significant co- contributor to, to getting this taken care of. It, it, it's a massively complex process. Uh, and uh, it, in some ways, it really needs to be so that we're re- all very, very confident that the right vaccine is given to, being given to the right person at the right time. And that we've got enough, we've got a price that means that we can provide it to enough of the population. And that's one of the differences with vaccines. You know, when, when one of us gets a vaccine, we protect ourselves, but we also reduce the risk for everybody else. And, and I'm sure you've heard about the idea of herd immunity. Yes. Vaccines allow us to get to herd immunity, but only if we can get enough of the population vaccinated, and then we all benefit from that protection. And so a, a very high price would get in the way of, uh, of getting to herd immunity. And so uh, it's really important to, to negotiate a price that allows us to get to herd immunity. So for the layperson, uh, what is the explanation of the definition of herd immunity? Herd immunity is when there is enough protection in the population through, through vaccines, that enough of them are, are vaccinated, that the risk of community transmission uh, of, of, of the, the disease is very, very low. It, it's all, you can't eliminate it completely, but it's very, very low and at a level where we're confident that if there was, you know, somebody did get infected, we'd have the capacity to, to uh, isolate them, treat them before it spread uh, and became an outbreak. Okay, let me ask you the ethics question. Once the vaccine or vaccines have been developed, have been tested, have been uh, deemed safe, once all of the steps are taken to the uh, distribution and they're actually now being ready for distribution, who who gets it first? What's the 
How do you establish the order in which different peoples, different groups of people, different ages, demos, whatever the, 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 the you know the yeah. the reality is? How do you establish how that? How, how do you establish that? And, and that's you know it, 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 it's a really complex question, and, and I'm not an ethicist, uh, uh, but the way we think about this from uh, from the healthy economics perspective is you 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 want to maximize the the health benefit you know uh, to 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 the population but with a, a virus load disease like covid we want to do more than that we want to enable the economy to get going again quickly and so there's this balance between uh vaccine those vaccinating those who are most at risk uh from personal harm and vaccinating those who when we know they're safe, it enables people to go back to work. So if you think about the uh, getting teachers vaccinated, you know, we've seen how crucial opening up the schools is to the economy being able to reopen. That's absolutely vital. And the evidence is pretty good that younger children are not at, at big risk. But we still have a policy conversation about the children, the teachers and their risk. So vaccinating them early would give us a lot of confidence. Vaccinating the uh, carers in long-term care homes, we've seen how that was a major, you know, they uh, there was a major sort of uh, mechanism for the spread uh, of the disease. And, and so the nurses, as well as the residents of long-term care, the residents of long-term care are at high risk of, of bad personal outcomes, but also uh, that the nurses there are, you know, they have their own risk, but they characterise a risk to the people they care for. So it's a number of, of different uh, factors that you, you're, you're trying to balance uh, and, and make uh, the best decision you can on balance uh, to try and uh, make sure we can get the economy going again, but also rapidly affect, uh, protecting those at the highest risk. It really is. Uh, it really is a complex uh, situation, complex reality. Now, once the the vaccine has passed all of the jumped all the hurdles, um, you know, it's it's being. I'm choosing all the wrong terminology here. No. Once the once <laughs> once the vaccine is being distributed and people are receiving it, how is the effectiveness of a vaccine measured? How how can you do that, and how quickly can that be done? Well, this is a really important issue, uh, and thankfully, that we have something called the Drug Safety and Effectiveness Network uh, in, in Canada. It's funded by Canadian Institutes for Health Research, and, and it covers the whole country. Uh, and they, use, they they basically uh, they capture data on the outcomes uh, of patients of uh, on who receive in any drugs that are prescribed uh, across the country, and. Uh, adverse or safety issues that they, they monitor the outcomes uh, for safety issues and for effectiveness and so with uh, with this vaccine uh, we would expect to see very rapidly uh, a, a, a separation of the infection rate amongst uh, groups of people who had been vaccinated compared to the rest of the population that hadn't been vaccinated and and that you know the the health systems are set up to report that information and the drug safety and effective network have the the skills to to analyze the data rapidly and make the reports to the regulators and to the payers and to the public health officers uh, across the country so that we really would uh, expect to see you know within uh, a couple of three months i would guess very clear signals uh, of the effectiveness and the safety of, of the vaccine. Because, you know, the reality is, you know, the trials that go to Health Canada, 
they're large for trials quite often you know they can be tens of thousands of patients involved in these trials sometimes but we're looking at something that we're going to administer to millions of people and that's why the drug safety and effectiveness network is there so that the they can catch the signal of any untoward events that is that are rare you need to have millions of people use the drug the vaccine in this case to get a signal that there's an issue and, and, and so people can be really confident, not only is the, the evidence looked at repeatedly uh, before the vaccine is given to patients, but what happens after that is to continue to look what happens to the people who receive it, just to check that it's effective and check that it's safe. The Fraser Institute just completed a study on that and released the information. And it got my attention because the average Canadian family spent 42.6% of its annual income in taxes on 2019, and that is more than housing, food, and clothing combined. Jake Fuss is the economist who uh, did that study, conducted the study for the Fraser Institute. He joins us on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, Jake, thank you very much for the time, and I just gave the numbers. But please provide some context to this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, well, you know, it can be challenging for Canadian families to calculate all the various taxes we pay. Um, you know, not only do we pay personal income taxes, but we also pay property taxes, payroll taxes, fuel taxes, sales taxes, and the list goes on. Um, so we calculate the total tax bill for average families every year. And in 2019, like you said, we calculated that the average family spends under 43% of their annual income on taxes, which is almost $39,000 a year. Um, if we compare this, and I found this very interesting that you did this in the, in the study, the release that I saw, you compare the total taxes that we paid or families paid in 1961 versus the tax load in 2019. What are the numbers? Yeah, so if we look back at 1961, roughly one-third of the average family's income was spent on taxes, and over 50% of their income went to basic necessities. But this situation has now actually kind of reversed. So now we've seen the amounts diverge and taxes now amount to about 43% of income in 2019, while basic necessities equal about 36% of income. So the situation has largely changed since that time and taxes are now constituting a much larger proportion of families' income. So if somebody says, well, hold on, so maybe that's true. Maybe there is, uh, we pay a lot uh, greater, significantly greater percentage of our income to taxes, but certainly government services will have increased dramatically. Would that be true? Well, of course, you know, taxes do pay for important public services, uh, but we need to also consider where the money is going and how effective that spending is. So if we look at healthcare spending, for instance, that has grown considerably in recent years, but our wait times are still quite long, especially in comparison to other universal healthcare countries. So, you know, each Canadian should evaluate the quality of services they're receiving and weigh it against how much they pay in taxes. Ultimately, Canadians can decide for themselves if they're getting good value for their tax dollars and the level of services is acceptable to them. It really, you know, I keep going back to the 42.6% of, I don't know why I'm laughing, but you keep going back to, maybe it's just defensive thing, but uh, we go back to that 42.6% of family income going to taxes. That, if you just think about it, is massive. That is huge. And then when you put it into further context and say that it's, you take the housing, you take the food, you take the clothing expenses of family, and that 42%, 42.6% eclipses those three expenses, absolutely necessary expenses, that gives us an, a, a, a deeper look into, into, uh, into the reality. What are some of the other aspects of this 
taxation that you discovered during making the study? Yeah, like you said, that, that was certainly an interesting insight that we saw of just how much we spend on taxes versus, you know, things like housing, food and clothing. Um, so, you know, if we look at housing, for instance, the average family spent nearly 22% of their income, which is about $20,000 on housing in 2019. And at a time when people are worried about paying their rent and mortgage and how much of an expense that is, we actually see that taxes are the single largest expense for average families. So it's nearly double what they're spending on housing, which was something that was really surprising to us um, when we do this study. But it's now a trend that we've seen over time of just how much more people, uh, pe- people and families are spending on their taxes in comparison to housing and things like clothing and food as well. Were there other surprises that you just weren't expecting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, one thing that we've seen, you know, in recent years is payroll taxes and the elimination of certain tax credits. So that's increased the tax bill for families as well. Um, and, and then just also seeing like uh, the other numbers for clothing and food as well. Um, the average family is spending about 11 percent of their income on food and about 4 percent of their income on clothing. So these these expenses, although they are substantial, they pale in comparison to the overall tax bill. You know, there's um, there's information, and uh, we've talked about it on the program, about how much Canadians actually owe. And for every dollar of income, I believe now the debt, the average debt for Canadians, for the average Canadian person is $1.77. So you earn a dollar, but you owe $1.77. Uh, that tax number, that 42.6% tax number, when we look at that, for every dollar you earn, you owe a dollar seventy-seven. We, I think, are comfortable sometimes, too comfortable, saying, "Well, people are just spending money unwisely," but maybe not so fast. Maybe that tax bill is just causing people to buy essentials on credit. Yeah, I mean that's that's a, certainly one possibility. Uh, I, you know, the tax bill is certainly constituting more, um, more and more of people's income now. And then you also do have the expenses of um, basic income. Um, you know, we do have household debt and things like that. Um, and we do also have to add in uh, government debt as well. You know, if we're looking at you know, the expenses right now, we're running about a $343 billion uh, federal deficit. So we're not actually fully taxing for all the benefits that people are necessarily receiving, like the CERB and wage subsidies. The tax bill will actually get passed on in future years, which can actually add to the, to the tax bill of, of families again. So they could actually see that 42.6% of income number actually increase, you know, in the next decade or, or over the next several decades um, as we actually have to pay for the debt accumulation today. So, sure. you know, it's household debt and government debt that we need to incorporate into all, all these considerations here. Yeah, which makes me ask this question. If we were to put this ang- increase of taxes from 1961 to 2019, uh, again, you're right, including all types of taxes, that bill has increased by 2,226% since 1961. If we were to put all of those uh, increased taxes on a graph, would the would the line be much more steep in the last few years than it was in the first part of the graph? Um, so, yeah, the, the sharp increases were largely in the 80s um, for the tax increases over time. What we have seen in recent years as well, like I mentioned, um, increases in payroll taxes and the elimination of certain tax credits. So that tax bill has increased by over 2,000% since 1961, which is uh, significantly higher than all the other basic necessities. 
And even if we account for inflation, we find that the total tax bill has still increased by about 169 percent since 1961. So no, no matter how you really look at it, the graph would certainly show um, a large increase in that line would be quite steep um, for taxes in particular. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 